listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. I'm taking the hosting chair from Ben this week to talk about gentrification. We'll have another show on this topic next week, a produced hour all about the data and ins and outs of this often brutal economic phenomenon. But for now, I wanted to share this insightful conversation with two black women working hard at community cohesion in downtown Wilmington. My guests today both work for the Northside Food Co-op. Sierra Washington is from Charlotte, but went to school at UNCW and has become an integral part of the fight for a grocery store on the North Side. Quaylen Bowen also works for the co-op. She's a lifelong resident of Wilmington, and she spent her formative years on the North Side before moving to the South Side in late high school. She grew up on 6th and Harnett and has seen the city change around her. What do you think about the businesses that are cropping up on 4th Street? Um, I just... I, I personally, I like to see, like, the new like new development if it's cultural to uh, the his, history of that said neighborhood. Um, because, you know, the north side was, you know, historically, we had a lot of booming, successful black businesses. Um, so that was, like, not foreign to us. Um, but when you look at, like, the new developments and think about, like, what they used to be, it's kind of like, wow. You know, I was having this conversation with Sierra the other day, and when I, my mom was an AIDS rights activist here in Wilmington growing up, and so we were heavily involved. I was heavily involved as a child in, like, that. Um, and so right near, like, Pallet was a, a Curates of Wilmington, and I volunteered there a lot. They provided resources for folks with living with HIV and AIDS. Um, but now it's like, Boombalatis and ice cream and IPAs and you know it's just like wow you know it is what it is yeah well I think for one I think those businesses because of the people that they're connected to that are connected to the community they do try and give back to the immediate north side community I mean we earlier this year we partnered with Pallet and Boombalatis to raise funds for the families of the Wilmington Housing Authority. And that was a great event. And because Pallet is so popular amongst new Wilmingtonians, they raised a lot of money for us. And so there is this like, and and I would say the same thing with Highwire. Like they are new businesses that are coming in, but they're receptive to hearing what this community used to be. And they're receptive to working with the community organizations. But at the same time, the audience that they're continuing to draw in within our Northside community is not representative of the Northside community. So you have a lot of outsiders coming in. And so, like, for example, our building, our home base at 1019 Princess Street is right across the street from Highwire and Cugino. And when we first started as an organization at 1019 Princess Street, Highwire was not there. Cugino was not there. So we, over the last year and a half, have seen a huge change on Princess Street in terms of the business, but also the population of people that come. And Princess Street in general, and a lot of areas in Wilmington, like we've talked about, doesn't have the infrastructure at all to accommodate the influx of people that are coming to these new businesses. And I think that in seeing that, 
it does feel like a bunch of outsiders just coming in and taking over the north side physically like it like princess street you, it's dangerous to during certain times of days to walk up and down that street or to even cross the street because there's so many cars parked on both sides mostly illegally and then even on our side of the building Highwire and Cugino customers will come and park on our grass any sort of way. And it came to the point where, like, before police started ticketing people, they were just parking on the street but not, like, their car was half on the grass, half in the street, so people couldn't even drive down 11th Street. And that is, like, if you were in your own neighborhood, you wouldn't do that. Like, if you, and and I don't want to say it's a conscious thing that people are doing, but, like, you take care of a place that is your own. And when, as like small of a thing that that was, for us, it was just like, dang, you really coming up in here and Mm -hmm. (laughs) treating this any kind of way. And I think that, like Quaylen said, like, it's exciting to see the new businesses. We patron the new businesses and hang out there. But we also recognize, one, the inequities in the city. And how certain neighborhoods don't have anything until new businesses come in and, and take up property. Two, I don't think Wilmington in general, like there's a lot of justice issues in Wilmington. But I think overall, Wilmington has a terrible infrastructure <laughs> for new businesses. Like you can see in the cargo district. You can see over here on Princess Street. You can see over there on 4th Street. Like these new businesses are great because they're bringing new people in. And it's we love to shop small, shop local. But the physical infrastructure isn't there. So when you talk about people feeling physically pushed out of their neighborhoods or physically like outsiders are coming in, it's more concentrated and you can viscerally feel it because there's literally no parking. That's Sierra Washington from Northside Food Co-op, along with her colleague Quaylen Bowen. If you're just tuning in, this is the newsroom from WHQR, where we're talking about gentrification in Wilmington's North Side. So Sierra, I've noticed a lot of the newer businesses on the North Side have employees and owners who don't necessarily reflect the demographics of the North Side. Why do you think that is? I don't necessarily blame the business owners. I more blame the system of capitalism Mm -hmm. and how we view business Um, and how, because there is this movement of shop local, be local, but I think from a community perspective, standpoint and from an organizer standpoint and what I'm hoping in a sense we can get back to in Wilmington is smaller localized communities right and so like if you're coming into a neighborhood as a new business owner you're just trying to survive you're trying to make sure you have the right people that are trained and great and amazing and you're trying to bring business in if we are truly trying to be a part of a community and we are truly trying to provide small business that increases the economic development of the people in your immediate community, then you're going to have to slow down just a little bit and think about how your business affects the surrounding community. I think that business owners Because it's so expensive to start a business, you're just looking for a cheap place to set up and you're hoping to attract the customers that fit your vibe or fit whatever you want. When in reality, it would almost be beneficial for you to do that and get to know the people who are in the immediate neighborhood so you can already attract the people that are closer to you. 
Like you want to attract the people that fit your vibe, but you want to do proximity as well. Because those are the people that are going to protect your business when things start going down. If you're coming into any neighborhood, your biggest supporter and your biggest protectors of your business are your immediate neighbors and your immediate community. Just like if you live, just wherever you live personally, if something were to happen to you, something dangerous was happening in your home, the immediate people around you should and could have your back more than your family member that lives a state over, right? And so there's that level of camaraderie and protection. There's that level of community buy-in. So you have people who will patron and use your products and stores. There are people who will give you creative ideas to make your business locally better. And so the restaurant, The Half, and I know we're name dropping a lot, so I don't know if we're supposed to do that. You can. <laughs> okay. So there's this restaurant called The Half on the north side now. Um, it's that sandwich place. Yes. Right. And one thing I appreciated is that on their website when they're telling their story – they were like, we recognize the land that we're on. We recognize the building that we took over. It was this black-owned business, which was the first blah, 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 blah. Like, they told the story of that place. And I appreciate that. And I think that that is – that acknowledgement is also kind, right? And so what is what are the steps that you can do beyond that? And then are your products accessible and affordable to the people who live around you? Like, yeah. you should at least have something, right? Because and, – and all of this, I guess, is super moralistic and it's super communal. And we're not necessarily, in America, in general, a communal society. We're very individualistic. Yeah. It's a lot of things. Um, just hearing that, that's a way to de- decolonize, right? That's a step. That's what you do. Um, but that also preserves the culture of the community that's been there historically. Yeah. Um, and those are, like, small ways in which you can, like, move forward, yeah. um, which we don't see a lot of the times, right? Um, when people move here, it's, like, that missing cultural piece. Like, 4th and Harnett Street, I grew up on 6th and Harnett. 4th and Harnett is where the 1898 ri- massacre occurred, like, started. Um, a lot of folks you'll see now just running up and down the block, but the history that we have in these in these communities is, like, Wow, it's amazing. Um, and I think that, too, speaks to, like, the residents and the community members being able to have a voice to tell their stories um, because there is, like, still this, like, disconnect from folks who, who move in these neighborhoods. And they don't necessarily know, like, what happened prior to them moving in. And to bring back that community, know who your neighbors are. Have those conversations. Um, you know, that's something we talk about, too, like when new people move in from different places and how they don't acknowledge the folks that have been there. And it's kind of like you're the outlier. Yeah. That's crazy to me. Um, but then that speaks to, too, these are the folks that will be protecting your communities. Um, I have neighbors that I've had since I moved from the north side for, like, 20 years. Like, we know each other. And even my street has become, like, super gentrified. So it's like whenever you see that new neighbor come, um, more times than not, I try to, like, extend, like, hey, welcome. Because it can be intimidating when all of us around each other know each other for so long and we are like, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, hey. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm just here because I can afford to live over here. Um, And how do we, like, be better community to each other, you know? These are questions. Um, I think we've been acknowledging and trying to be more engaging 
um, how do we like bridge that gap yeah. um, of getting community to know each other and have these conversations, even though they may seem like controversial or just challenging conversations to have, but they have like real life implications. That was Quaylen Bowen from the Northside Food Co-op. Also joining us is her colleague, Sierra Washington, to discuss gentrification in Wilmington's North Side. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Stay with us. This is the Newsroom from WHQR. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for joining us. I've been chatting with Quaylen Bowen and Sierra Washington about gentrification on the north side of Wilmington, the causes, the cultural shifts, and where it's all going. Let's get back into it. There's research that shows that when Airbnbs take over a neighborhood, it accelerates rent well, increases. That's how I lost my last housing. It became an Airbnb? Yeah. I was renting it. So they have a bunch of historic homes. A lot of our friends, that's yeah, how we lost yep. our housing. Literally. Yeah. So All through downtown. Yeah. Yes. So my roommate and I were living in a house on 2nd and Ann. Um, it changed ownerships right as we started our rental agreement. We found out about the house through another friend. And they were renting each level of the house as a different apartment, which was fine. We had affordable rent for the two of us. I mean, it was expensive for the size, but we got to live downtown, which is amazing. The new owners came in. We sent them a sweet message a couple months before our um, lease was up. And we were like, we'd love to sit down and talk with you about keeping our place. Um, We'd like to renew our lease, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, yeah, we're on vacation, but we would love to talk to you. And then a month later, they were like, yeah, sorry, girls, we really tried. We tried to figure it out, but we had some plans for the space and, you know, we can't change them. And they're like, yeah, so when you guys move out, we've been doing renovations on the whole house. We're actually going to be staying downstairs in your apartment while we finish fixing up the rest of the house. And we were like, okay. <laughs> and so then we found another house. A month later, the all three levels of the house that we were staying in were on Airbnb. And he was charging, like, $3,000 for the space. And I want to tell you, my apartment, we were living in the basement of that historic home. It was less than 900 square feet. And he's charging $3,000 per level of that house. So it's like, that happened to me. That happened to our friend Lily. That happened, like, all of these homes that people have been staying in and renting for years, decades. Yeah. Are, they're kicking people out when we already have an affordable housing problem so that they can get a rotating income mm-hmm. where they can charge higher because you're downtown or you're by the beach or you're in Wilmington. They're catering to tourists and they're catering to the film industry, disregarding the people who have been living here, who are doing work in this community. So I also live on the north side. Yeah. And, you know, there's an Airbnb around the corner, another one up the street. That also takes away from community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's a rotating cast of random people passing through who don't care about the neighborhood. Yeah. They're okay with littering. I've seen people do that. The Live Oak concert venue has become a major draw for turning a lot of those naturally occurring affordable housing units into Airbnbs because now there's this whole other draw for the concert crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was a choice that the city made to put that there, right? How does that make you guys feel when you think about those big economic pictures? These are just people who have a little money and want to make an investment, but they're coming into a neighborhood and 
buying up land, buying up property that used to be housing for people who now can't afford to live in that neighborhood anymore. I think the whole Airbnb thing is crazy. And I say that while also recognizing that I use Airbnb. But it's just the fact that like there literally used to be an ordinance in Wilmington to limit how many Airbnbs could be within a certain vicinity of one another. And then that was overturned. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, again, that was more of a capitalistic economic decision to overturn that rather than really looking at the communities and how it's affecting the communities. It was overturned because of state law, though. I don't think that the state law was looking at how it is affecting our community locally. My understanding is that the city cannot regulate Airbnbs, but they could ban them. If they wanted to, they could ban them. Does it have to be an overarching ban all? It would be based on zoning. Mm. So they could ban it if you are in residential zoning. For the most part, deeper into the north side, it would be protected. But I don't think that the city wants to touch short-term rentals again because of how contentious it was before. Yeah. Like you, I, I use Airbnbs and I've recently stopped because I realized once I was doing that, how I was a part of the problem in someone else's neighborhood. Mm. And I would look around and I'm like, I know what's happening in my neighborhood. This looks exactly like what's happening. And it made me feel uneasy. And that, that goes back to integrity, right? Yeah. Another piece of this that a lot of times we talk about, but we talk about them like separately, but like affordable housing, because there is housing being developed, but it's just not affordable for anyone, for us that's currently living here, um, working these hospitality jobs because we have to cater to tourists, right? We can't afford that. Um, and the displacement that happens um, is harmful. You know, I, I would refer to like violent to a degree because it takes a toll on you. Like um, when we moved in the early like 2000s, it wasn't like by choice. It was like my uh, landlord at the time was like, hey, we'll give you this option for, you know, um, rent to buy. And so my grandmother was like, okay, cool. And then hit her like a year later, like, oh, no, we're going to sell it. And I could just remember like my grandmother like just crying because we had grown up in this house. Like I've grown up in the house. And then moving to Southside, first of all, like as as a local, when you grow up in um, a certain area, neighborhood, like you don't usually like just go to other neighborhoods unless you just have family over there or you just, have friends over there, but typically we like, you know, congregate amongst each other. And so having to like pick up and move to the south side, it was just like, I don't know, where am I? It was so foreign. Now it's like home. Um, so I can like call both of them home, which is great. But I can remember as like teen, I was just like, this is devastating. Um, so just to think about like how that affects, you know, communities and families and people when the displacement happens. Because it's not like there's just development develop happening and then, you know, this, these nice things are coming. No, people are literally being pushed out of their homes. Mm. Um, and the lack of acknowledgement around that, and um, the conversation around uh, the affordability of housing, the lack of that. Um, what, would this, what would these neighborhoods look like 10 years from now? It's like the haves can just say it's not personal, but for the people who they're affecting, it's obviously personal, Very. right? Yeah. Very. I wanted to ask as well, um, people being displaced. So you ended up on the south side. 
do you know where other folks are ending up? Same. We we were all over. Um, we have folks. Be, a lot of my friends um, were out east. I would say, so like Creekwood, Maids Park area. It's, it's interesting because you'll go out there, like if you go to like Creekwood or out east, and you'll see a lot of folks who literally grew up on the north side who like that's their home now too. But both are because of like displacement that has happened. And that's the same for like the south side. Um, we just went. All over. You know, Taylor Holmes got closed. Um, Nesbitt Court, which is what, like, South Front, Front on South or something like that. Like, we just, we had to be pushed out. Some of us went to Leland. Some of us went to Castle Hayne. You could see the shift in our school. It was a wild time. Um, and And I think at the time, like, we didn't have the language for it. We just knew something was happening. You know, you started seeing, like, Oh, more fights happening. Now you have people from different communities placed together who typically aren't together. And it's just like there was no transitioning for that. There mm-hmm. was no support for that, um, that shift and that major change. Um, I think like during that time, especially um, in high school, those are like some primitive years. You know what I mean? And it's just like for, for you to have like such a major life change like that happen. And you don't have, like, the language to verbalize, like, what's happening to you. Um, and it's happening at once to all, a, a multiple amount of kids. And it's never, like, really been addressed. Like, we're all adults now. Um, and some of us are still, um, some of us have gone back to our, like, respective communities, right? But most of us, like myself, I can't afford to go back to Six and Harnett Street. Like, I just, yeah. I couldn't afford to live in my old house now. You know, um, I talked to Tim yesterday. Um, from lowercase leaders. And I asked him what gentrification is, basically. And he said, gentrification creates scared white people. And I thought that was really poignant and interesting. And you talking about like the fights in high schools, you know, like the kids coming in assumed it was like that beforehand. You know, they're probably like, oh, my God, I'm coming to a high school with all these fights, not realizing they're causing the fights. Right. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's the perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I know it wasn't like that. <laughs> or like the, the white people that won't, you know, are walking down the street that normally you wouldn't. Like you've called me out on that before. Like people don't walk in the dark down right. the street. Right. The do- jogging at like nine or ten o'clock at night with the dogs is like, where am I? Yeah. Like <laughs> you know your neighborhood. Zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know your neighborhood well enough to not do that. But yeah. the white people will come and, like, do those things and then be confused when something like. happens or, like, goes down. And I don't know. I also think that it's it's interesting that he said it like that. But I think any time a black person opens their mouth about it mm. or tries to stand yeah. up and say something about it or we get a little passionate or heated about it, like, that's where the fear comes in or the fear of, like, we had someone come in our building one time, and they're like, we just got the neighborhood to where we want it to be. We just cleaned it up. And then, you know, all these people are coming in and doing these things. And it's like, I think it creates scared white people, but then I also think it creates defensive white people. Defensive of, of what they're doing, defensive of their actions, defensive of their businesses, defensive of their way of living and wanting to live the same way that they've always lived now in this new community. And... Again, I'm not someone who grew up here. I'm not someone who has history here, but I definitely 
respect and have come to know my neighbors in the north side and on the south side. And I guess if we were to answer what is gentrification, I I would probably lean towards the displacement of community and the lack of feeling of community. Because when all of these new businesses come in, it's not like they're making communal Like, even amongst each other, it Mm -hmm. doesn't feel super communal. It just feels very like we started this business. Like, even in the cargo district, like, you have a bunch of amazing, cool businesses, a bunch of amazing, cool entrepreneurs, but is there really a connection between all of them? Is there a connection between them and their local neighbors? Like, gentrification is the degradation or the decline of community in general. Mm Mm-hmm. It, people don't feel connected. Businesses don't feel connected. It's just a place that you flock to. It's not necessarily a place that you stay and you call home. Yeah. So it's the severing of connections. That's Sierra Washington from Northside Food Co-op, alongside her colleague Quaylen Bowen. If you're just tuning in, this is the Newsroom from WHQR. I'm reporter Kelly Knoyer, and we're talking about gentrification in downtown Wilmington. One of the things that Darren said, Darren McCoy said when I talked to him was, you know, he he kind of classified the people who move in who aren't black in different groups. He was like, there's the poor whites and then there's the gentrifiers. Mm. And he basically was saying that there are people who move into a community and become part of the community. Mm -hmm. And there are people who move into the community and call the cops. Mm -hmm. I heard the cops have been called on your community dinners, too. (laughs) Someone complained about the parking, Um, but like I told you, it's not. People are parking at Highwire and Kajino. The cop wasn't being, like, rude or anything, but the fact that any time a cop comes to a community-based event and we haven't seen you before, you haven't tried to communicate with us before, we've tried to, like, if you're already there, we encourage you to come over and talk to people, and you don't, and then the one time that you do is to tell us that we're in the wrong for something that is out of our control is a little off-putting. The reason we have block parties, the reason that we host the dinners the way we do, and it's not like a soup kitchen, and it's not like it was never our intent. Our intent was to build community cohesion. So if you are eating with your neighbor, if you're playing double dutch with your neighbor, you are more likely to go help them at 3 a.m. because you have context of who they are rather than calling the cops on them because you're scared of them. Connection creates community, connection creates understanding, and connection yeah. creates patience. That's I think that's why what you guys are doing, like you're not doing the economic version of trying to prevent gentrification. You're not buying up houses or whatever. But it, it seems so interesting to me because it's like there's the economic gentrification and there's the fight against that, which is like trying to build affordable housing, trying to prevent people from losing their homes, which some organizations are doing to mixed effect And then there's the cultural counter-gentrification movement. And I think that's what you guys are doing. I think you're the center of that. Or do you think of yourselves directly in that way? What we're doing is preserving, you know, that that cultural aspect of the neighborhood. Um, I think it's necessary. And it's a community effort, seriously. Like, it's only a couple of us who, like, are, you know, actually, like, work at the the food co-op. But it, it really takes a lot of community support who've grown, we've grown into like a family really. Um, 
So it's just like a little, sometimes it's a little disheartening when you have these new businesses coming in and then you have this like, this like hub right in the middle of like organic community cohesion happening and to not be acknowledged, but expected for your business to still be patronized um, from outsourced, you know, members. And it's just like, wow, okay. Um, We have a real genuine thing that's happening and hopefully like we'll just grow and get bigger, implement it maybe on the South side or out East and just just, to grow in that way to like be able to preserve a lot of like history and uh, the culture of the communities, right? Because we know that gentrification is happening. It's happening like rapidly, of course, on the north side and downtown because of the proximity to downtown. But it's happening all over Wilmington, and so I think what we're doing is like it's it's a start. It's a beautiful start, yeah. and it could grow into something like even more bigger. And I think to what Quaylen said, it did come out of necessity. Yeah, like. None of us are strong enough or business savvy enough to figure out how to fight gentrification economically. Right. Right. Um, And honestly, in order for the grocery store to be successful, we are going to have to have people from all over shopping at the grocery store. And so from a business side for us, it is important for us to engage with all parts of Mm -hmm. our community and making all parts of our community feel seen. And I'll also say, I read a book this year called Tattoos on the Heart, and he quoted Mother Teresa. And honestly, this is a quote that has stayed with me the whole year. If we don't have peace in this world, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. And so if we don't have peace in the North Side, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. If we don't have a grocery store, it's because we've forgotten that we feed one another. If we don't have housing, it's because, you know, like it's all of these things that are super communal and super countercultural to what we do. But everything that we do as the co-op stands out because we as a team are super communal. (laughs) We are are super Super. intertwined in each other's lives, maybe not to our therapist liking. (laughs) (laughs) Work-life balance. Yeah. But like we started there as a staff and then have expanded that to our farmer's market and our vendors that come to the farmer's market and every single person that we meet because we want to make sure that everyone feels like they belong. Like like in an environment where gentrification severs community, taking a beat and taking a second to remember that we all belong to each other is important and it's key to fixing all the things that we have issues with in this community. Like none of us are going to be able to do it alone and it is that mindset shift. I mean, I love that idea, and I really love those dinners because they do have such a community feeling, and that's something that I think is really missing in American society. You know, that's something that people get from church, but if you're not religious, which I'm not, you know, you don't get that. Or it used to be something that happened in other venues, and we've just lost so many of those opportunities in and the I think United that's States. what the breweries are trying to do, but yeah. it's it's too much. <laughs> it's too much. There's too many breweries. And in theory, they're they're interesting because they are huge spaces most of the time yeah. that are supposed to be communal. They throw events like any other venue, but there's still something missing. The culture. I mean, yeah, right. The culture. I mean, it's disparate groups coming together and yeah. not interacting, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's very mm. different from the way it feels at these co-op dinners. Because at the co-op dinners or the brunch, 
people go and chat with people they've never met before and they get to know each other and then they recognize each other's faces and they keep having connections. One of the things I wanted to point out is that the culture and the economic element do intertwine because Mm -hmm. there's been studies that show that more diverse neighborhoods tend to help uplift people who are lower income within them because you get more opportunities when you know people. So if you are a lower income family member in this neighborhood and your neighbor is like a rich lawyer, maybe they're going to help you become a paralegal. Maybe they're going to set you up. They're going to give you the letter of recommendation because they know you. And I think that that is fostered in the co-op, but not in the brewery, right? That's what I see when I go there. And I see like fancy white neighbors who've lived for 25 years in the north side coming to those dinners. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR. I'm Kelly Knoyer, and my guests are Sierra Washington and Quaylen Bowen from Northside Food Co-op. We're talking about gentrification this whole hour. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer, here with my guests Sierra Washington and Quaylen Bowen from Northside Food Co-op. We are discussing the ins and outs of gentrification, so let's get back into it. I talked to a PhD student about redevelopment because looking at solutions, obviously this community needs more housing. Like that is, we need more housing to accommodate the people who live here. And a big part of the rent increases across the board in this community, it's because there's just not enough supply. The city has zoned the downtown area for upzoning. They've made it so that any single-family home could be replaced with a duplex, basically. So they've done that here, but they have not done that further east Mm -hmm. in some of these, you know, suburban kind of style neighborhoods. That is exactly something that can cause gentrification and more displacement, according to this PhD student's studies in New York City. When that kind of zoning happens just in one neighborhood but not in others, it can lead to displacement. The antidote to that would be inclusionary zoning, which requires affordable units, but that's not something that's legal to require in North Carolina. And it could be incentivized by the city. They've done that in some of the larger apartment complexes, but on the small scale of a duplex, you can't really do that the same way. So it seems to me that the city has almost, you could say it's intentional or unintentional, but they have set up downtown for redevelopment. Um, And that sets up the existing neighbors to get pushed out. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's 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 wild because people didn't even want to live downtown. People were living in the suburbs. They didn't even want to live downtown. I worry that people who listen to this show or people who hear about, you know, people speaking against gentrification or speaking against or still calling out 1898 or things like that are just going to feel as though people just want to leg up or people just want certain things. And I just feel like there needs to be some bridge between the people that are talking about this right now and the people who don't get it. Because there's something there. There's something that they they just feel as though we're talking about these things and and talking about housing and they're just like, well, it's just what happens. We all had think hard things that happen, and we just have to move on and get over it. I think that goes back to connection. I think that goes back to understanding people's lived experience and individual stories. Because if you know a person, you're less likely to call the cops. You're less likely to shoot a person. Like, all of these things. I think 
I think it's great that you're doing this. <laughs> and I think it's great that so many people are talking about this now. But there is still such a divide in Wilmington and such a divide of people that no matter if they hear this show, until they get to actually physically know people in their neighborhood and community and they understand and can find some relation or empathy to the people who are actually suffering the shadow side of gentrification, suffering the shadow side of not having access to a grocery store, they're still not going to get it. And that is why all that we do recently has been about connection and community and people being in the same spaces together. I can't stress that enough because a lot of my perspectives of who I was when I was in high school or even when I went to UNCW have changed because I am in direct connection with people of different life experiences, of people who live here, of people who have gone through real traumas and things. I think that's something that I worry about is just like there are people who still just don't get it and who think that we're trying to victimize ourselves or we're trying to force people to give us a leg up in something. And I don't know, that makes me sad. It makes me frustrated. And I mean, the redevelopment was imposed on this community. Mm -hmm. It's not like the leg up is from nowhere. It's like we were doing fine, and then you came in and changed everything, yeah. and now you're saying that we're complaining too much. Right? That's kind yeah. of the energy. Or we're messing up your plan. Right. Yeah. We're messing up your plan. So I think that where I feel conflicted about gentrification is that I go back to the studies that say, like, it can help people who come from a lower-income background. It also helps the people who are moving in learn more and understand more because you won't understand unless you talk to your neighbors. And if they live in Mayfair, they don't have those neighbors, right? Like, right. <laughs> so uh, it's like this can be a benefit for society in some way, but the way that it's capitalistically working is so vicious. Yeah. So it's it's tough because it's almost like if there weren't a housing shortage, if nobody was being truly displaced, would this be as harmful? Would it be harmful the same way? Yeah. It's not like an evil person coming in and doing evil, you know? No. It's not black and white like that. No, so right. it's it's complicated. Yeah. Very uh, it's systemic, you know? It's very it's strategic. I think we definitely need to be aware of that when we have these discussions, not just one person moving in with their new brewery. It's like policies, mm. you know? And I think a lot of times we don't talk about that. Um, who are the people who are making these policies? Hmm? Because systemic racism is a thing, is violent. Uh, and environmental racism is a thing, and that is violent. And that does cause harm, but it's not as a group that makes a cohesive decision to implement these changes. It's not something that happens overnight. Right. It's something that's been in progress for a long time. You know, and a, a while ago, that's why I kind of wanted to, like, get more involved when it comes to, like, politics. Because sometimes that can be a foreign concept in a lot of communities, just the education around what happens when you're not at these tables and these decisions are being made for you, they affect you. Um, so if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? Dang. Say that again. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Oh, my gosh. Okay. The phrasing of that is so interesting. So when they were doing the community comprehensive plan, like 
a year and a half ago. I interviewed the planning director for the city. He's now retired. And he wanted to make it so more housing could be built more places. And coming from Portland, where they've done a lot to try and work on more housing being developed, they made it so it was legal to build more dense housing everywhere in the city. And they did that across Oregon. Minneapolis did the same. Both of those places have not seen rent increases the way that we've seen here, by the way. I ran the data. 1% increase over six years in Minneapolis, 6% increase in Portland compared to 60% here. So those policies make a huge difference for affordability. So I asked him, knowing about these other options, why are you not requiring zoning to be increased across across the board? And he said there wasn't an appetite for it. Who'd you ask? The planning director. No, 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 no. Who did he ask? Right. <laughs> Who do you well, mean there's no appetite for it? Who's complaining, you know? Uh, and it's the same thing that came up when the tax base got increased, right? Yeah. It was a lot higher changes, like a lot higher raises to your tax base in the black neighborhoods, which was a result of gentrification, right? Okay. If you think that that's wrong and you want it to be valued lower, you can protest it. But who's going to do that? Rich white people who have legal representation and know their rights or whatever and feel like they're going to be listened to and heard out. And I think it's the same thing with the zoning. They knew that if they were going to upzone all of that Midtown stuff, they would never hear the end of it. But they knew they could impose it on downtown. Yeah. I mean, you see that at the city yes, council Yes, I was meetings. just going to say that. Ahead, you see it all the time. Yeah. Uh, we, we tune in, or well, I do, tune in to like city council meetings or go, and it's just like, no, you're not building that in my neighborhood. You have, like, people really protesting yeah. that heavily, like, not in our neighborhood. You're not, you But that's know. not, like, something that's taught yeah. in the black community. In my community, when I was growing up, I didn't know you could just go tell <laughs> I didn't know. That you don't want them to build in your neighborhood. Like, there's that is privilege. Mm-hmm. And, look, they should be able to do that. But we should have the knowledge to be able to do it, too. Yeah. And... We don't have that background. And I didn't even know that you could do that until I started doing this work and had friends who told me to go to these meetings and that I should be listening and I should be doing these same things. And I think that has been part of our conversation about the work of what we want to do with the co-op is also empowering and encouraging our members and our community to know about these things and to know the justice side and the systemic side of food access. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR. I'm Kelly Knoyer with guests Sierra Washington and Quaylen Bowen from the Northside Food Co-op. Uh, when it comes to housing affordability, there are so many different problems and knock-on effects, and it seems like some of the solutions to the big picture problems make neighborhood scale problems worse. So it's like, what do you do, you know? Because there has to be development to meet the demand of all these people moving here. They're gonna move wherever there's housing. So what do you do? Yeah, I think it's similar for everyone. You yeah, know, like it's it's hard to it's complicated, and then too it depends on the, your perspective and where you are within the happenings of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you the one that's being affected by it, or are you the one who's moving in? Mm-hmm. Where what is your role in this gentrification process, right? right. And then we talk from that perspective. Um, but there are some people who just move here because it's nice and the beach is here, and mm-hmm. so. Um, it's it's always like a it's a tough conversation to have because I'm pissed about it, you know what I mean. I've been affected by it, and I know so many people who yeah. have been affected by it, but also want to have like a real honest uh, conversation and about around that what's happening and um, how it's affecting us and ways that 
I mean, the solutions to that, right? Because when you're talking to folks who's been gone through traumatic experiences, right? But also to talk about, like, how do we find solutions to that? It's difficult when it's happening at such a rapid pace. Like, a year, what you we on Princess Street and all that development, a year? So, like, how many conversations do we really need to be having around this? Like, we need to be having a lot of conversation around it because every day is a new building. Uh, how long will it take for the residents in New Hanover County, like, and on the north side to be displaced? What's, what's the studies around that? The residents who lived and occupied those spaces that are hanging on there, um, how and what year, without any real solution base, how long will they still be there? I can tell you the data. The census 30 years ago, 99% black population on the north side in the two census tracts, it's gone down 37% since then. 30 years, 37%. So it's happening very quickly. I think Wilmington has a, a lot of potential. I think I really do believe that. But I also believe that, like, sometimes this feels like an impossible task. And it feels like an impossible thing to figure out what to fight for this time. Which, which like, for us, we're, we're focused on food access and community cohesion. And that feels big and crazy and wide. And we have other friends who are fighting in other areas and trying to really do some things. And lately, I think because of the ARPA funding and I think because of people paying attention to the social determinants of health, a lot of us have been able to make a lot of strides recently. But the speed at which the other stuff is happening is pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, I like to think of, like, hope is an action. Mm. And so I will never, as long as I'm actively working to resolve the issues, I'm always have hope yeah. that we can fix these things. It, it can be overwhelming and disheartening. But if I know that I'm actively trying to combat it or change in a positive way, um, that's a step. And then once you start linking with other folks... It just adds up. Um, so I think it's, like, so imperative for me not to lose sight of that hope um, because I don't necessarily – I don't do the work for me to see it. I'm mm. not going to be here forever. But I have children. There's youth here. There's going to be other, you know, generations yeah. that come along. And I do what I do for them. That's good. I Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I almost want to end it there, but I also want to say, uh, when you say Wilmington has so much potential, I feel like I've heard that from so many different <laughs> kinds of people, and they all mean completely different, different things. things, you know? Yeah. I think there is something simmering in Wilmington amongst the people doing community work. I think there is something simmering in Wilmington amongst the people who have been calling out the injustices for so long. And it seems to be at a point where it's going to bubble over into something good and it's going to bubble over. I mean, why else would the co-op have support from the city and the county? There are some things that are getting traction that hadn't got traction before. There are some new energy and voices that are being mentored and supported by some of the old leaders um, and elders in the community that are pushing us forward to make these things happen. And so like Quaylen said, there's hope in this. Mm -hmm. 
And as a smaller community organizing community, we ourselves are encouraging each other and empathizing with each other and continuing to push this forward because it's, someone told me, it's too important to fail. It's too important to not do this work. And so I wouldn't still be here if there wasn't something special about Wilmington. There's a lot of people that move here. There's a lot of people that come to this space, and it's special to people for a lot of different reasons. But I think for a lot of us doing this community work, there's this energy that we feel that we can't let go of yet. I agree. We have this conversation all the time. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, so... Thank you both so much for coming. Um, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? North side, four, five, six. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for coming. This has been so interesting. And I'm almost certainly going to do this as an entire podcast on its own. And then also do parts of it <laughs> on another podcast. That's dope. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you, uh, Quaylen Bowen yes. and Sierra Washington thank from the Northside Food Co-op. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to Sierra Washington and Quaylen Bowen for this conversation. Our WHQR technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed part of the program, you can find it on whqr.org, and you can also find it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.